Welcome to Season 4 of the Unscripted Podcast, a podcast by medical students about living and learning at the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine. On the show, we host a variety of discussions such as navigating the preclinical and clinical years, exploring humanism in medicine, and developing our physician identities outside of the textbook. Check out the show notes or our website for more information, helpful links, resources, and more. Please connect with us via email or on Twitter at unscripted underscore med. We'd love to hear from you, and we hope you enjoy the show. Hey, everyone. My name is Rachel Holloway, and I will be co-hosting today's episode with Molly Carroll. Today, we talk to Malia Schramm, a fourth-year medical student here at UCOM applying into family medicine, specifically specializing in LGBTQ plus and reproductive health care. Malia has served on and co-chaired several equity task forces and taught several classes, as well as spoken numerous times as a panelist for transgender health. They are a Gold Humanism Honor Society inductee and a National Health Service Corps scholar. Today we talk with Malia about their experience as a gender minority medical student, how they have found allyship and maneuvered difficult situations throughout training, and how they have found their voice in advocacy and teaching roles. We hope you enjoy their perspective and take away some key pearls for advocacy and allyship. Hello and welcome back to the Unscripted Podcast. I am here with my co-host Molly. Hi there. And we are joined today by a very special guest, Malia Shram. Hi, Malia. Hello. So, you know, today we're talking about advocacy and allyship um, throughout medical school. And we can honestly just go ahead and dive right in. Um, You do a lot. You are passionate about a lot. But we'd love to hear from you, you know, a little bit about who you are and your background and what you're passionate about. Great start. I love it. And I've been practicing this a lot recently with the <laughs> season. So I was born and raised in kind of a smaller town, Spokane, Washington. It's on the eastern side of the state. We're the biggest town between Seattle and Minneapolis. So there is not much else out there. Uh, my parents are not medical. My mom is a microbiologist and loves science. And my dad's a financial planner. Um, they had a small business and we like had a pretty lovely childhood. Um, my mom has a lot of health complications, but I still had a lot of love and support. And we have family in both rural Montana and Southern California. So I have a lot of West Coast in me. I was pretty nerdy <laughs> all my childhood. I really wanted to do everything. I wanted to be a paleontologist and a vet. And I wanted to work at Petco. And I wanted to be an architect. And I did not know how to get all of those degrees. And then I found science in middle school. I really liked human growth and development, which was our fancy name for sex ed. And that was not a cool opinion. And (laughs) it worried my mom. She was like, why are you so into this class? And I said, it's going to be okay. I think maybe. Uh, And I realized OB-GYN was kind of what that translates to in the medical world. I still love science in high school, still loved medicine in high school went into college knowing that I wanted to be a doctor by then. I was a biomedical sciences major in Milwaukee, Wisconsin at Marquette. And I got a minor in culture, health, and illness, which was a way of tricking my parents into letting me take a lot of sociology classes. (laughs) 
I absolutely love doing volunteer work, uh, specifically with intimate partner violence. That was a big part of my curriculum at that time and was a big concern in the area I was living in. I was living in a really resource-deprived area as well. It was the, I think, second or third poorest zip code in the city. Milwaukee is the most segregated city in the country. We had the highest rate of syphilis and the highest rate of incarceration of Black men um, in the country. So lots of very real determinants of health and outcome and life and longevity. Um, through that, I saw, heard, and experienced a lot of things I'd never expected to. And it further cemented that I think medicine was the answer for me in terms of making change that could better the world. I applied to a bunch of different schools and like I had for college, I just randomly went to the one that was cheapest. And that happened to be the very lucky choice of University of Cincinnati. I Woo-hoo. really loved my interview here and <laughs> they offered in-state tuition after your first year. So I came here and very quickly said, hey, I really like uh, specifically, I think I phrased it as LGBTQ plus care, and I like reproduction. And then the very first person I talked to was like, so her name is Dr. Sarah Pickle. Find her. <laughs> she will guide you. <laughs> Love Dr. Pickle. I've heard so many good things. Uh, yes. We're trying to get Molly to meet up with Dr. Pickle um, as part of our little podcast project that we have going on right now. But yeah, she's awesome. So um, since you've been in medical school, now you're a fourth year. Um, what you know have you done over the course of your fourth year? This is probably a loaded question with everything that you've done. But <laughs> um, and you know how has that kind of how have you found yourself developing you know a career? Mm, I like this. This is also like the sound and. And phrase I use when I'm trying to create space during my other interviews for residency. Mm, I like that question. I'm going to use this. (laughs) (laughs) And then you like ponder, rub your chin a little. Um, I, when I first started, I just started as a student, as we all do. I began Uh as someone who needed to study a lot to maintain the kind of grades I wanted and to succeed. Uh Um, So that was 95% of my time. And the small other 5% was... um, kind of that back burner identity I'd put off in in undergrad. I kind of, as I'd mentioned with just everything that happens in Milwaukee, there are some additional factors playing in that I didn't feel fully comfortable being my true and most authentic self. I'd applied to school as um, an out queer person, but not as all of my identities I currently carry today. And that 5% turned into maybe 10% during the pandemic when I didn't interact with other people. And then it kind of spiraled. And all of a sudden I was like, "Uh uh-oh, I'm not just passionate about caring for this community. I think I'm a part of this community. Um, And I started identifying as genderqueer, part of the gender diverse umbrella. Um, With that, I had already had connections with Dr. Pickle and worked with her as my LPCC preceptor. Uh, I... I don't even know if I could say I came out to her. I think I just showed up one day and was like, Dr. Pickle. And she was like, I know. (laughs) (laughs) She's like, I know. No one is that enthusiastic. I know. (laughs) (laughs) So she supported me in that. And I really needed some other outlets. I was at that point in the very beginning of my second year and was 
not feeling all of the books and tests and studying. Um, and so I started working with other groups that looked like joining task force and adding myself to whatever group said, hey, we need interested students to help out with whatever survey, asking to join any faculty meetings that seemed fun. Uh, mm-hmm. And by fun, I meant like kind of interesting. I, I think the first big one was the anti-racism task force. Uh, that was really impactful in that early education journey. And then once you start meeting people and start explaining your interests, your perspective, the identities you represent and the ones you don't, but want to advocate for, I started having further connections with people higher and higher up. So that meant because I was working so much with Dr. Pickle, she started recommending me to other people that she knew because of the anti-racism task force. I communicated a lot with other people in those task force. I then was asked to be a co-chair for the gender equity task force. They wanted someone with a gender diverse background and perspective to help lead that. And from there, it just, it completely spiraled. (laughs) I would almost say out of control, but I've like barely held onto the reins. Um, I started teaching um, pretty aggressively. I taught um, a really lovely seminar and course discussion for the nurse anesthetist program. So it was all the classes there. It was a giant session. They blocked out time from everyone's schedule. It took me eight months to prepare. I met with faculty and taught them. That was just a massive undertaking. That was really wonderful. I taught the American Medical Student Association's International Transgender course. So I was a course leader with one of um, our previous classmates. She's class of 2022, Bridget Watson. She's up in Michigan now. Uh, And then I was doing small speaking events. I was doing a lot of panels. Once you meet the right people, you're suddenly invited to every panel. So it (laughs) felt like I was on, I think in total, I've been on 10, maybe, maybe even 15 panels. Um, And then I had a particularly special opportunity to speak with Um, one of the writers for University of Cincinnati um, for a local newspaper. And so I did an interview with him and some of our classmates about the transgender curriculum and being a trans student at UC. Um, They then did a press release, which I had never heard of before and did not realize was a thing. And I got calls from the local news. I got called up to interview with them and they wanted to release a piece on me and my story for Transgender Day of Visibility, which is our funner holiday in the trans land where we celebrate the visibility instead of remembrance, which is coming up. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then all of a sudden, uh, if you Google my name, it is very scarily all me for all the pages. And it's (laughs) very visible. And it's like Malia Schramm, advocate for trans people. So... That's where I've kind of tumbled into. That is so awesome. I actually did not know all of that stuff. I'm kind of, you know, catching your story from the tail end. Um, I, for the audience, recently completed a two-week transgender medicine elective that Malia helped to create. Um, And so I was joking with Malia before we pressed record that I feel like I've been talking about them with like tons of people and how great they are. And uh, now I finally get to like sit down and talk with with you about, you know, everything that's led you to where you are today. So 
I love hearing that and, you know, how you found your your truth and your role in medicine throughout the four years that you've been here. Yeah, I feel like you've had an awesome opportunity to accomplish so many cool things and really tell your story, which is great to hear. Um, and it sounds like you've had a lot of success so far, um, but I, I do wonder what sort of challenges you faced in your medical training so far as a result of your gender identity? Yeah, great question. Uh, I think I denied my own truth because of the degree of challenge I had in undergrad. I was at a Jesuit university, which is very variable in how supportive they can be of students. I was personally at a university that had a pretty lackluster support system. Um, we had also pretty regular protests against LGBTQ plus students on campus by outside organizations. And when we held a pride prom, I'll never forget, there were over 16,880 signatures demanding it not happen because it was deemed socially unacceptable by whoever on the internet that signed this petition. Um, so the best I could do at that time was survive knowing I was different. Um, this is true of a lot of people with the pandemic, but once I didn't have that pressure of daily interaction and putting on whatever facade I felt I needed to, I was like, wow, gender is wild. Gender is weird. I don't think I fit in the box I thought I did. And it became really clear to me that to re-immerse in third year and to enter the clinical space, I needed to be authentic to that identity. Um, for me, that meant I initially just, I, Rachel would know this, I used to have hair all the way down to my waist. I cut off over three feet and have like, had a variety of very short haircuts since then. Um, and that was in part of visibility, but also just like a freedom excitement thing. Mm -hmm. um, I then, asked my classmates to start using they them pronouns when referring to me and i eventually got a series of increasingly aggressive badges lanyards and other pins that say they them um, as my way of being more upfront about who i am and how i like to be addressed um, in terms of challenges i am someone who's very sensitive to making a, an encounter comfortable I think one of my big assets and part of the reason I'm going into family medicine is that I can pretty well shape a conversation to have some outcome, whether that be them feel more comfortable, increase trust, convince someone to take their statin. I'm, this is like, this is my niche thing that I really like. Uh, and that becomes a little complicated when just me being me makes people feel uneasy. Uh, it results in me compensating or choosing when to be myself. Um, for me, that looks like coming in dressed in whatever quirky, fun way I want to, but going into an encounter, trying to read what that patient expects from me. So sometimes I am, I am for the audience. I am a white person. I'm a thin person. I'm from the West Coast. These things make it very easy for people to find me palatable. And they really like that I'm, I, I can be relatable. I remind them of their weird grandchild sometimes, or that, that one person who lives down the street. Um, I look like a neighbor to a lot of our patients or someone who's not threatening. Um, so I will often sacrifice the, 
the kind of forward-facing aspect of having a gender identity that's different than what culturally is expected. Um, that being said, it can be kind of uncomfortable as well when you're graded. We're in environments that we're trying to do things to make a grade, and this affects absolutely everyone. It means we say, no, I totally love golf. Like, absolutely. I was actually on the golf team. That's technically true. I was on it for four days. I got kicked <laughs> off the golf team because I am bad at golf. <laughs> but we say these lies to kind of make other people like us a little more. And they're, they're the truths that, that are expected in those situations to make things comfortable. Um, so I felt a pretty severe pressure to do that, to not correct people about my pronouns or to make it a, a non-issue. It's something that is just there. It's just It's just a piece of today's encounter. Um, the other big difference is there were, there are those little moments that become bigger moments later, such as a lot of our surgical locker rooms, you have to choose a door to enter, um, which fine, I can choose a door, but you must choose that door to get to the OR. It is the main entrance. And this is true at a few different clinical sites. And it creates this encounter where it's happened twice to me, a resident has tried to lead me through and was like, um... you should go through a door. I'm like, great. <laughs> Love it. Love it here. Fabulous. I'll pick a door. Don't worry about it. Um, and it just, it makes everyone a little uncomfortable and it reminds me that I'm different. It reminds me that I've been honest and open about something that makes me not what they expected that day. Um, and I think the other component, which will be really interesting if I listen back to this podcast is I, um, I change my voice quite a bit depending on encounters. If I'm with someone who I think will be more comforted, if I have a higher pitch to my voice, I will absolutely go for that. I have really bad doctor voice, which is what I think my mom's phone voice is, where you say things like, oh my goodness, I am so, I am so sorry. And you just, you make <laughs> it loving and warm and honey. And if I'm with someone who I think they're like, do you even go here? Like if they have that attitude to them, I'm like, hey man you know what, like, let's back off. And I, I go a lot deeper and I get a lot more gruff in my voice. And that comes with the clothes too. Like I'm wearing a tie today or I'm just wearing a button up. And it, it really alters those medical experiences and creates um, just a touch of tension. Definitely. Well, thank you for sharing that with all of us. Um, and then you kind of outlined all of these challenges you faced. So facing those, what sort of things have you used to deal with those challenges, like a good support system or preceptors? Obviously, you mentioned Dr. Pickle. Yeah, I number number one is peer support. I have several layers of group chats and friend groups that are each designated a role in who gets texted in what order for different encounters, whether that be a success or a frustration or just an observation, I have people that I reach out to. I have systems that can then like, like that message or call me or provide advice or just empathize, just say that sucks. Um, so absolute number one is that system of peers. Uh, biggest other one, obviously Dr. Pickle. She is always my advocate, my ally. And when I've had concerns that I didn't feel like I could trust my own either because I had already tried or they were just a little bit beyond what I could do as a medical student. She gets CC'd and things happen. Every time that has happened, everything has changed. 
Um, so I, she's just a fantastic, powerful source. Um, and the other one is having those outlets of authenticity. I sometimes joke, this is, I saw this on, I think like Instagram of a comedian saying, um, yeah, I'm definitely gender. I think they said non-binary and they're like, I'm non-binary for everyone except my mom. Yeah, definitely her daughter. I'm not even going to touch that. So I feel that way about my family. I'm not particularly insistent on any difference in how they address me. They raised a daughter. That's fine. I'm fine with that. But it means that if that one outlet is not fully authentic to myself, I have to have a lot of others that are. I really prefer professional authenticity. I think it makes me a better patient advocate and a better physician. Um, but it means I have friends that I can also be authentic with. It means I have places that I go and people know who I am and they know who I am without the white coat. And that is so lovely to finish a long day and just to be myself, to feel relaxed and at ease. I'm hearing, you know, these instances in which you have had friction, both with people that you encounter, patients that you encounter, people that you work with, um, that might not be the most comfortable. Um, and, you know, I imagine that not all of these encounters are things that can just roll off your back and, you know, you turn to, you send a text and it's in, it's a simpler solution. So have you had any experiences in medical school or, you know, if not medical school, maybe prior to medical school in which you really had some significant conflict either with a patient or with um, someone in the healthcare workforce that you've had to deal with? And if so, how did you deal with that? Yeah, I, I've experienced a lot of different healthcare throughout time, um, from both my mom and her medical issues to, I had like a very weird series of medical issues in college that I ended up having C. diff, which for anyone who knows anything about C. diff, you should not be 20 with C. diff. That's weird. Um, and I was hospitalized in a pretty resource-low setting where I didn't have access to medications and I didn't have knowledge about what I needed to do. So I've experienced those differences. I think actually one of the, one of the most powerful ones when I wasn't, because once I got labeled a med student, things are a lot easier. I just, I inherently have power. Sure. Um, with that degree, I remember I went for an OB-GYN appointment and I was supposed to be getting an IUD insertion and removal, which is just not a pleasant task. And I was nervous about it. I, it was probably one of the first times I'd made a big kid doctor's appointment without my mom. And it was a random doctor who I didn't know. And I remember the encounter being really rushed. I thought I was just getting a removal that day. I didn't know we were doing an insertion. I didn't have any medications. I didn't know what kind I wanted. Mm -hmm. And it was going really quickly. And then the provider switched into speaking Spanish to all of the staff, which is fantastic for Spanish speaking patients. And in a, it was an experience that I, as someone who speaks English, have had the privilege of always being able to communicate with my health providers, and this was the first time I couldn't. And it really, really scared me to not know what they were saying as they were doing this pretty intimate procedure that's frankly painful. Um, and I remember at that moment just feeling so small and so vulnerable. And afterwards, I called my mom and I was like, am I 
a real adult now. Is that what adulting is? Is a crappy healthcare experience? Because I crushed it. You know, I like got out of there. I got the healthcare I needed and walked away. And it took until I was in medical school for me to realize that was not adulting. Right. <laughs> that was just like a really crappy healthcare encounter. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it helps remind me, like when we use translators for patients and it, we don't translate everything, it's still scary. Mm-hmm. It's scary not to know what's happening. That is really impactful. I can't even imagine, you know, I use translators not infrequently when I'm in the hospital and it really puts it in perspective to kind of hear your experience and put yourself in the shoes of someone who doesn't speak the the primary language of the healthcare workers. So thank you for sharing that. You know, your story is, uh, you know, very empowering to me um, and I really like all of the you know advocacy work that you've done all of the teaching work that you've done and to me it seems like all of these things really align well with what you're passionate about in medicine and also your own experience as a genderqueer person i wonder what your advice would be to any listening students who have a passion for lgbtq care um, want to be an advocate or an ally but don't know how or, you know, simply need to be an advocate for themselves in these kinds of healthcare settings. I love that. I'll address the first half as just in general, wanting to like be an advocate for something you're passionate about. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually pivoted a little during the last six months and started also advocating for death care and patient loss. It was something that was really profound for me during my third year. I experienced an unusually high volume of patient loss, um, a lot of really graphic deaths and a lot of deaths where I was either the only person in the room or the only person who'd met the patient before as they passed. And it, it really changed how I viewed healthcare. It radically altered my belief in our ability to make a difference. And it started to creep up on me and started to affect my ability to advocate for the next patient, to feel like I was part of a system that was inherently designed to make a difference. And I really needed support. Um, That looked like for me, first step, reaching out to those friends, those mentors. Um, I also, and I know you guys talk about this on the podcast, huge, huge proponent of therapy. I think if you like that sounding board and that sounding board is a good fit for you, get one because Nothing is better than when I have mentally spiraled into thinking I know the right answer and then talking to a therapist and usually they're like, uh, hi, hello. Did you notice that there is like a big obvious other answer here? And I'm like, absolutely not. I cannot see that. That is behind a mystical curtain. Um, so I started talking to my therapist. I actually had at that point developed PTSD from the experiences and I felt a lot of shame about that. I felt very weak and very small. Um, I ended up doing CPT, which is an evidence-based form of therapy for specifically for PTSD, and it's intensive. It's 14 weeks of a weekly session, daily worksheets, um, and it was beautiful. I have to say that was the most beautiful therapy I've ever done. It quite literally cured the PTSD. Like I, I know it's an overstatement, but it's like literally not a diagnosis on my list anymore, and I'm very grateful for that because of this really challenging work I did. And then I connected with a death care researcher. 
I wanted to make a difference in a different way other than helping fix myself. First, put on your own oxygen mask, and I had done that. And I started working with a wonderful researcher, and through GHHS, I was able to speak into plenary for all all third-year students talking about patient loss and talking about my experiences, talking about therapy, talking about having PTSD from medical school uh, and being so incredibly vulnerable. And now I'm going into residencies where I'm asking, what does your palliative care curriculum look like? What do you do when a patient passes? Do you reach out to family? Do you support each other? How does that work for mental health, wellness, and just for physician completeness? Um, So that was one that I could really define the beginning and end of when I advocated for LGBTQ care. Um, The very easy start is to reach out to the people who are already doing the work, whether that be peers or professionals. Um, Start looking at resources. There's a million fantastic guides online to LGBTQ plus care, whether it be mental health measures, gender affirming care, overall disparities, discrepancies, and so on. Um, and self-educate. I think that is a beautiful thing we're all capable of. And then kind of that final component is start advocating for yourself as both if you're a member of a marginalized population or just advocating for yourself to get opportunities. I think it can be really hard to say the words like, I want to do this, I want to be a part of this, or I want this thing on my resume, because that feels inherently weird for some of us. but it's a little easier when you're like, I'm passionate about this. I'm passionate about providing quality care and learning and teaching and becoming the best advocate and physician I can be. And all of a sudden people are like, I mean, that's a little nicer phrasing. Absolutely. Here's an opportunity. There's always opportunity for unpaid labor in medical school. (laughs) That is what we thrive on in this system. So Huge recommendation there. And I think the final component of if you are someone who is having to advocate for yourself and your own identity, find an outside person too. I think I can advocate for other identities sometimes better than ones I carry simply because I am not marginalized in that way. It is easier for me to stand up for another student when they experience racism than it is for me to stand up for myself. It's easier for me to have someone, especially like a cis male colleague, call out sexism in the room than it is for me. Um, So I think one of the biggest advocates you can have is someone who has different identities from you that also has power, whether that be a peer or someone with administrative power. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So you talked about ways that students either within the community or outside of the community can get involved. Um, But if you had to pin it down to like one small way that medical students or maybe residents, regardless of their gender identity, could be an ally for others around them, what would you say that like one key way that they could support people would be? My favorite phrase in this, which is not what I was taught as a kid, is the opposite of the golden rule. Treat people the way they want to be treated. Mm. I... I like to be treated a certain way and I'm a very unique person and how I like to do things. I don't correct people about my pronouns unless I'm in a very specific situation. I do not like direct confrontation, not my jam. I have a preference for visible pronouns. 
I feel safe enough because I carry other identities that have safety. Um, and I feel safe being out to my classmates and living in this city and being around people that support me. Now, if you're trying to advocate for a patient or trying to help others and be a good ally, the most important step is asking other people, how would you like to be treated? Not necessarily making them educate you, asking extra time, but saying, I noticed this. My favorite patient encounter is to say something like, I noticed in your chart that there were some discrepancies in how people referred to you in our language. How can we best talk about you in our electronic health record? And it allows a patient to say, yeah, I love she, her pronouns when you're talking to me, but my mom reads my chart. Please use he, him. Or honestly, it's not a huge deal to me. I don't really read the record. I just want to make sure that people know I don't have a uterus. That's important to me. I hate being asked that question. It allows for an opportunity for someone to open-endedly tell you, hey, here are things that make me feel safe and affirmed. And if they don't know what to say, if they say, I just, I don't know, just help me. Don't do this. Don't do that. You can always say, here are some things that I've seen help other people. I've used that line recently and was able to address that a patient was like, I actually feel pretty fluid about my identity. I just want to make sure that I don't receive worse treatment because of my identity. And it created this entirely different conversation we had about finding affirming providers, even if you're not using that provider for gender specific care. Hmm. That's great advice. I really like the, I noticed like intro to mm-hmm. things. I'll have to start using it. Yeah. It can be very impactful. And this is, we can cut this from the recording, but I also had a patient interaction recently where something that the provider said was uh, very triggering for this patient. And Mm. she started doing all of these tells that were, you know, picking her nails, making less eye contact, really like, uh, you know, being answering very quickly, like, "Mm mm-hmm, yep, mm mm-hmm. And she, she just appeared very shut off. And so after he left, I was like, I'm just going to stay in the room for a little bit. And I, I used that line and I do think it's very powerful. Like I noticed that, you know, what he said seemed to upset you. Like, tell me what you're experiencing right now. And she just broke down and, Mm. you know, explained how triggered she was by all of this stuff. And, um, yeah, those, uh, those moments are like the most impactful and meaningful. And those are like what keep you pushing forward in like a sea of, stress because like those are the like meaningful moments that like patients need providers for need support for and like if you can just be a human with them in that moment then like it's so helpful anyways that's my soapbox I'll step off of it now I digress but you're literally saving I I would escalate it to the point of oftentimes that can be life-saving it can mean Mm -hmm. someone comes back to the doctor it can mean Vaguely, I had a patient who was refusing certain medical treatments. And because I went back and said, these are things I've noticed. These are some of my thoughts and feelings about what I assume you've experienced. Can you Mm -hmm. tell me what you have experienced and how we can compromise? And -hmm. the answer was no more glucose finger sticks. And this was literally a life or death procedure we were offering. And I was like, I can 100% get rid of glucose finger sticks. Mm -hmm. That is gone forget it ever happened. I'm throwing them all away. It was Mm -hmm. that easy because the patient just wanted someone to know, hey, 
I'm tired of this. I'm tired mm-hmm. of having things done to me that I didn't want done to me. Mm-hmm. But you don't know those things until you ask. And like having the language to ask in a respectful way that's open and allows them to speak their truth. Like that's so important. Uh, yeah. And I know that it's not always, it doesn't always go the way we want it to. And it's not always sunshine and roses. You can't always come to that uh, negotiation and like compromise with patients. But I'm so excited, like hearing these stories to get in the clinic eventually, like soon. <laughs> Fingers crossed. I'm ready for didactics to be over. <laughs> I'm hearing that a lot lately, Molly. <laughs> a lot yes. of them too saying, I'm ready for this to be done. <laughs> yeah, no, I just, I'm just so excited. These stories are just like inspiring about being in the clinic. And like, I feel, at least in my opinion, most people come into medicine to take care of patients and to really make a difference in that way. And I know that I need to build all my knowledge up so I can be the best provider I can be, but I am ready to move on so I'm excited by these stories yes I always say third year each year I think it's progressively better I don't know Malia if you would agree with that there are stresses by far like far and away you know there are constant stresses and each of them are new and you you learn to tackle them but they there's more to keep you going as the years go by Alrighty. Let's see. Malia, is there anything else that you would like to make sure that we talked about in this episode regarding allyship and advocacy for yourself and for other people? Yeah, I I had a really great conversation maybe seven or eight months ago with a student. We were talking about how to advocate for yourself in the clinical setting, and they carry different identities for me. And one of the most important things that we recognized in that conversation was I, my cup is filled when I do this. This is cup filling Mm -hmm. work for me. This is stuff that brings me joy, that brings me pride. It's something I love. This is not cup filling work for everyone. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to be. You are not any less than or worse as a patient provider, navigator, physician, student, if for you, this is not the thing that helps you. And this student and I were specifically talking about, like, I was like, no, you could join this task force and I know this great person and I'll connect you. She was like, when I'm done with the day and I'm done trying to fit my identity into this system that doesn't want my identity in it, Mm. I just want to be myself by myself. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that's like the most valid thing. I am so sorry that I had already jumped and it really reminded me that if you to be a good provider all you have to do is be good to your patients and be true enough to yourself that you you feel safe and you feel at home in your own body and your own space that does not mean you need to interview with the news if my grandparents google me they'll find out and that's something (laughs) i'm okay with It does not mean you have to be the face of something or represent someone. You got to UConn not because of your special identities, but because they thought you as an individual were good enough. Mm -hmm. Not because you were going to make some magical difference with this unpaid labor. That is medical school. It is (laughs) deading labor. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, deading labor. That is a more accurate 
statement. Yeah, I think I saw a TikTok earlier that said, oh, I get 15, or I pay $15 an hour about to uh, go take the worst HPI in the history of HPIs, but I'm trying. (laughs) Yeah, I will never forget the patient who yelled at me for how much money I make to wipe his butt. And I shot back and was like, sir, I am paying $6,000 right now (laughs) to wipe your butt. Could you be a little bit nicer? And he was like, I am so sorry. (laughs) I did not realize. (laughs) That's hilarious. So that was a great way to start wrapping up the episode, Malia. Um, Before we close out, do you have any resources for our listeners to learn more? Yeah. If they reach out to me, I have a special folder called Trans Resources in which I have slowly and painstakingly accumulated everything anyone's ever given me that was useful. Um, that's a very like wonderful resource I'm always willing to give out. There are some more official resources that are free and accessible to everyone, including University of California, San Francisco Center for Excellence. Um, Equitas is one of our local health centers that focuses on LGBTQ plus healthcare, and they have a pretty delightful set of resources. There are training modules you can get access to for free that just require you to be a student. You can professionally join WPATH, which is the World Professional Association for Transgender Healthcare. Please hope I said that. Thank you. (laughs) Um, You can be a student member, which you do have to pay for. But right now, their Standards of Care 8 was just released. Very exciting. Dr. Pickle and I had a lot of things to say. Um, and this is a huge move forward from standard seven. Um, so you can read that. It's a short 231-ish scientific pages of jargon. So highly recommend as a bedtime story. Um, or honestly, like the internet is so good. Like especially social media. There are people who are willing to talk about the nitty gritty, their identity freely and openly, and that's free education. You're learning from people with lived experiences without having to put it on your peers or without putting it on your patients. So I love it. And I love it for all types of things, including like rare diseases. You just search that in Instagram if you're ever bored and it'll come up with like 20 different people with that condition. And they'll tell you like, yeah, honestly, the thing that bothers me the most is that my elbows don't fully extend. And you're like, that never hit me. I didn't realize that would be a complication. I love that stuff. Mm. Honestly, that's great advice. In order to better understand a patient's perspective about having a particular condition, to go on social media and hear from people who are outspoken about their experience, I've never thought of that. What a great idea. Yeah. The most recent deep dive I did, I think, I was learning more about stoma care because I just, I don't feel like I Uh, really understand how to care for the ostomy site. uh And someone was like, yeah, watch me do it and like showed how they do it, showed complications they've had, showed other surgery they needed. And I was like, wow, that was so easy for me to learn. And now when a patient tells me I've had to have this, this, and this done, I'm like, great. I know what that is. Wow. I know I've seen such really cool things on TikTok in that way as well. I know I always hate to say like I saw on TikTok, but <laughs> I think I saw someone This like, is okay. You're right. Yeah, I think I saw someone like doing like feeding themselves with their ng tube like overnight Mm -hmm. and stuff and i i just was like wow the ability of patients to take care of themselves outside of the hospital setting as well like and how freeing that must be um and other 
other settings as well. I just, I don't know. I thought that was so cool and empowering and to see a patient do it and teach others. And then even going in the comments and seeing people relate was really yeah. cool. Um, so I guess plug for TikTok. <laughs> Get our on younger, TikTok. <laughs> our younger siblings are going to hate us. If they hate us. <laughs> they're going to be like, they think they're so cool. <laughs> Alrighty. Well, Malia, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This was a wonderful discussion. Thank you for all of your pearls of wisdom. We love talking to you. Thank you both. This was such a delightful way to spend my day. Thank you so much. You know how in Ohio it's like illegal now for them to do the whole like look around the Zoom room because it's invasion of privacy, yada yada. Mm-hmm. Yep. I know they don't review those though because I had a cat give birth the morning of one of our. I remember are... this. <laughs> yeah. What are those tests that are like um, the like you just have to know math. EBM exams. Yeah, EBM. <laughs> Precisely. They're clearly like, on my mind. <laughs> yeah, I did not study for it. And I was like up all night with this cat in labor. She is adorable and was like, hold my paw the whole night. And I was like, <laughs> breathe, <laughs> breathe. We're like breathing through and she's like looking at me and she's like popping out kittens. The very last one, she was too tired to cut the umbilical cord. So I like pulled up the kitten, had her cut it with her mouth, and I'm like wiping down the cat. I turn around, I'm like, eh, it's EBF time. I am coated in cord blood, like <laughs> coated in blood. And I'm like, I guess they're okay. And I start the test and they ask us to do the Zoom room. And I'm like, bloodbath, <laughs> like genuine birthing room bloodbath. And then I'm like, anyway, and I started. No comments. No one emailed me. No one was like, did you murder <laughs> in the room? Are you severely injured? Like, So there is some deeply buried video file of me like actively covered in cat cord blood.